Making moves, yeah, on a dance floor. Rewind when the crowd say This means so, so much to me. Everything I touched was turning to gold. Everyone wanted a piece of me. And How does an 18, 19 year old deal with that? The height of success when it is like, whoa, there's so much of the, the human part that's being unmet. I felt like I was starting to make music to tick boxes. When I started to do Abandon Myself and I started to do things that just weren't in alignment, it was a point where I had dark thoughts. I was just like, I can't live my life like this. What people enjoyed from me was music. And I realized that from when I came back to London. I feel like the kid again. And trust me, the crowd are gonna go off when they hear something soon, okay? So 22 years later, if you could whisper in the ear of your 14-year-old self, what would you whisper? Listen, Craig. Without further ado, I'm Stephen Bartlett, and this is The Diary of a CEO. I hope nobody's listening, but if you are, then please keep this to yourself. Craig, I've got some lyrics that I wanted to recite to you, okay? Okay. It's another day at school, and he's just walking out the door. Got his rucksack on his back and his feet dragging on the floor. Mm. Always late. But when he's questioned, he can't think of what to say. Hides the bruises from the teachers, hoping that they'd go away. Even though his mum and dad, they both got problems of their own. Caught in a catch-22, but he'd still rather be at home. Cries himself to sleep and prays when he wakes up, things might have changed, but everything's the same. That's from your record, Johnny, from 2006. Yeah. That was, a, that was a, that was a song that I had to, it was the first time I think kind of opening up and, and expressing uh, experience that I felt that I had maybe on a lesser degree to a lot of other people in my school. I think at school, like in my, my secondary school, I've had a, a very, I had a beautiful upbringing. I, I enjoyed life. I was a playful kid. And I love music. Um, but secondary school, all boys school, went to Belmore and Southampton. And for the majority of it, it was, it was great times. But when you come in in your early years and you've got the older, the older boys in there and they're like, yo, you got two pound on you. No, I haven't got two pound. And push you up again. You got two pound on you. Like, and then it's not a case of like, if you got the money, it's like, let me check in your pockets. Let me try and pull out the pockets. So as a lesser degree of the bullying, I was like, I was experiencing it physically in the corridors. So I kind of, so when I was starting to write that song, I was drawing from, I had to go to how did it feel when that was happening? And it was only happening with one, one, one guy in, in, at one period in the school. So I understood what bullying was. I mean, that was, I was, I was felt helpless. I couldn't, it was two years older, stronger, could rough me up if he really wanted to. But then also I was seeing other people who were getting the, a real, I was getting the psychological element, but there was a deeper side of that psychology of when, they say, tell the teacher, they'll, they'll deal with it. This is the thing with bullying is that I agree with it, that it needs to be spoken to someone that you can confide in. But sometimes that kind of very rush in, you've told the teacher, they rush in, they, it's all out in the open. I was seeing kids who would then have the kid waiting outside of school for them. Or it might be that they, they're, they're, they're being bullied by someone from a different school even. So they'd be coming out to the school gates thinking, okay, well, I'm on my way home. No, it's about to start when you get on the bus to go home. Mm. So the whole world is now outside of school. You, you, you finish at 3 p.m. And, and now it's, it's beginning for you. So it was, I felt deeply that I needed to write on that. Um, and like I said, my mum my and dad had their own things going on. 
um, in their lives. And and I spoke to my mum. I, I wrote the song when I was in Southampton. I got like a, a studio when I was down there and I played it to her because I wanted her to also know that, mum, you've always been supportive to me. Like if, if I needed to speak to you, if I needed to say things, but with bullying, there is an element where you want to say something to the closest person in your life, be it your family, so your, your mother or your father. Um, and I wanted to really portray that in the song properly, but I wanted to have that combo with my mum to let her know, I knew that you would have always, if I needed to speak to you, you would have been there. Cause I do say you got your problems of your own and I've tried to tell you so many times you're not listening. And that is the case, a lot of the cases of bullying that even family aren't listening. So who do you turn to? So um, music has been that, that song in particular, I think it was a journey. My grandma had passed away at the same time. Um, it, it was, uh, I just needed to get things off my chest that I felt like this is past a romantic love song. I need to help people in, in a way that wasn't trying to preach. It was just, let me tell stories, anecdotes, and I do it through music. So, And you were bullied for your weight back then as well, right? Yeah, the, the, well, the weight one was, it's funny because like, you like to tell the story differently when you're, you're in a slightly different place and position, you'll, you'll, you'll tell it like, ah, well, you know, it was, and I like, I like everything about this is what you, the, your podcast for me has always, and I wanted to tell you off the bat, mm. what I love about you is that you're bringing out so much, so much depth in people and mm. you, you already know how much love I got for you anyway. Mm. Appreciate the, the being overweight thing, now I see it as actually in hindsight, it actually, it, it brought out so many things, wonderful things that I had to kind of, that have been repressed for a long period of time. But at the time, the social standard was, you need to look a certain way. Um, the the captain of school football team tended to be the one that, that the girls were interested in. Mm-hmm. You were the you were the slightly overweight one that they cry on your shoulder, tell you all your problems, have this real, you have a real empathic uh, relationship. Mm-hmm. You'd be like, what, this is connection. This is real relationship, but we didn't want to take it any further than that. Well, I, I, he's the one. Look at the way he scored the goal. Look at, so then you've already got this early um, imprint of what society ex- expects of you. And then you start trying to conform to that. So there are periods where I'd look in, in walking down the, the high street and I'd look in the, in, the, in the glass, the reflection in the glass. And I'd just be looking like, just feeling sorry for yourself, feeling like the jeans ain't fitting quite right and the, the jacket's not and you're getting bigger sizes. And then you are just feeling like, I'm doing all the fit, I'm doing, I, I could run, I had, some, I'd, I had some legs on me, you know, and, and probably boys at school, they'd be like, bro, you run, you run that faster runner. Which part do you run it? But I'll tell the story, I'm on the mic now. <laughs> um, I a, so I can move, but I was just carrying a lot of weight. Um, but not unhealthy. I think there was a point at, that when it became unhealthy was when I realized that my weight had, I was like 15 and I, I think my weight had, was starting to get to, no, I was 14 and my weight had got to 14 and a half stone. So I was starting to get, over my age and weight. Mm-hmm. And, I was, and I was like, maybe I need to slightly rein this in a little bit, health-wise. Mm. I ask these questions because, mm. and I always start with childhood on this podcast, and I, I, I've, I've reflected on this over and over again and thought maybe I should start somewhere else. But I know from my own experiences that my own like childhood traumas or the things that made me feel a bit invalid or insecure or felt feel shame when I was younger, mm ended up being like the the biggest drivers in my life. So when oh, I sit man. here, I'm trying to find out why, you know, you got really into fitness mm. and why you became, you know, who, who you became. I always start with like, what were the things when you were a kid that made you feel shame, invalid, like you didn't fit in? And, mm. and those tend to be the pathway to people's, you know, 
people's greatness in a weird way. hundred percent. Like it, it all, you're, you're, you've got this, this period where your heart's open. You want to, you're experiencing life. You're a child, like as you a said, puppy. you're a child, you're a puppy. You like, you just, you don't know. And then all of a sudden you get to, oh, mm. is that, oh, that, oh, I can't do that. Oh, that's the way to go. And then you're, 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 you're getting all that. You're imprinting all these patterns that only later you start to realize in, in your, in your, not even saying t- teenage years, I think it's still in adolescent years at that point, but when, maybe in your 20s, start to unpack things. Just if, you, if you're conscious, you're starting to recognize that this doesn't seem to line up with my truth. Mm-hmm. And then in your 30s, for me, it was like, well, I have to unpack all this stuff that was like the overweight thing because you're exactly right that it started then. And listen, I could I could eat sweets like Cadbury's Boost Bars were getting eaten like crazy. I go to the the, the news agents before I went to school to get on the bus. I'd be also I was selling chocolate as well, so I had like a little oh, yeah yeah I was uh, early days entrepreneur like. early <laughs> days yeah you'd find the, the the chocolate that was like had about two weeks left before it was out of date and you I'd work that in my in my lessons like listen I knew I had like from nine till eleven before there was a there was a tuck shop break. So I could just set the tone as to how much I want to sell it for. Well, you want a, a Mars bar for, yeah, it's a pound 50. But like, what do you mean a pound 50? Okay, bro, wait till 11 then. <laughs> you can go you can get it for 35p, whatever it is. Oh, bro, like, a pound then. Yeah, okay, cool, a pound. <laughs> bro, the leverage was incredible, right? So I always had a, an affiliation and one of my favorite movies is Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. So I think that set the tone anyway. I've got a bit of Augustus Gloop in me. I've got, I think we've got all the myriad of characters in that movie is me and ultimately Charlie, like, do you know what I mean? Um, so yeah, so it's just, um, I've been unpacking it, a lot of those things and realizing that my my health streak that I got went on at sort of in, when I was in sort of Miami sort of time and even slightly before that was all to do with this childhood thing of I've got to the six pack, the captain of the school football team. It's funny how like those things like, you're like, whoa. And it wasn't even, and the crazy thing with it is that when I got into the music, when I start rewind started blowing up, it was people just wanted to hear me sing. Yeah, it was like they didn't care if my stomach was here, there, six pack, one pack, two pack. And by the way, everyone, everyone has a six pack underneath, so just know that. Otherwise, your stomach's gonna fall out. So if that's just a saving grace for everyone, don't worry about the fat content and your fat percent. There's a six pack underneath everyone, so walk out in the street and feel confident with that. That's great. Let's start telling people that. Um, you, you talked in those lyrics, but then also then you talked mm. about your parents. Mm. And you said there was, I, I know, again, that's another dynamic because those are the, for most people, the most formative figures in their life. Of course. What was the relationship with your parents? And you said they had things going on that, that were kind of, it, it sounded like distracting them from the things that were going on in your school life. Yeah, I mean, my mum and dad broke up, uh, got divorced when I was eight. Um. But the beautiful thing is that my that my my dad always would come pick me up on the weekends on a, on a, a Sunday and it would either be going to like Polton's Park like um, go karting or I'd be helping him fix a kitchen um, which I've got I would say to my dad like dad like what's coming to fix a kitchen yeah. like like can we and I just, it was just I remember the the tools and the, it was dry and dusty I thinking what but I love those times with my dad yeah he really made an effort and I drives in his car playing reggae music, heavily influenced everything that I was going through. And for my mum, it was like, she was working nine to five. Um, so my grandma and my mother were pretty much raising me. My grandma would come pick me up from school when my mum was at work. So I had a lot of feminine energy in my life, which I'm, I'm really grateful for because it set the tone for how I wrote a lot of my songs, even seven days. I mean, I'm saying making love 
uh, 17 years old writing a song, Hussein Making Love yeah, yeah, yeah. on Wednesday. I mean, you listen to the songs now, they're not using that kind of language, but it was that I got, there's a respect I had for my, for my, for my mother, for my grandmother. And the fact that even for my dad, like, I didn't want him, I wasn't cussing out on record. My dad would just be like, yeah, we need to like speak mm. about this. So I just was, I felt I got a really good upbringing, but at the same time, I didn't have a great model of family life at home. I got a lot of, um, feminine energy and female uh, love and tension and care and all the things that you love from your mum and your grandma. And then my dad was just like, always had my back and I've got you, but I've never, I've never seen them together. So I think again, looking at childhood um, imprints and patterns as how they affect you later on. Relationship with, with women was something I've always been really close to, but I also had never had a model of how do you, how do you stay together? Yeah. With like the the relationship part, like I'm a romantic, but if you look at your relationships, like they haven't really worked out too well, or you've yeah. been guarded, and it's a journey of again of is this story true? Yeah, exactly. got, there's a point at which you've got to be conscious enough to actually ask that question, and it tends to knock on the door, and intuition's always there, sort of saying we can have this convo if you want, like we mm. can, I'll, I'll present you with the books, I can present you with the click on the right podcast to go to. I'll mm -hmm. get you to, we can unpack this. Someone will inspire you to do that. Exactly. But there's also what I've seen now. And I feel, I feel very, I feel open enough to be apologetic for relationships that I, I, just, I didn't, I, my heart was closed from the basis that not only from the family modeling, but also your, your first break, heartbreak. So for me, it was like, I, my heart was so open. Um, and I had that first heartbreak and it just went from a kid who was had his heart open and thought, this is it and you're into me and it's gonna, and then all of a sudden it just crashed. And I was like, whoa, that feeling. And I'd, I'd never felt anything like that before where I was like, I, I didn't know who to turn to. It was like, I felt that after, after early childhood sweetheart breakup, my, my heart had kind of closed down and I, and I feel sorry for, the, the the girls and, and women in the last stage of my life have tried to open my heart up. And that's all they were trying to do. There's, there's, there was things that went a bit toxic and, and went, but I I have to own those situations. I know a lot of guys is like, yeah, well, she's, the, the, the girl was like this or she was crazy. No, 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 forget all of that. I walked into that and I stepped in with a certain kind of energy and I gave off a certain feeling. And especially if you're having sexual relationships, there's a, there's a, there's an energy exchange between two people and you can play it off. It's like, no, but we had an unwritten agreement mm. where it was like no strings attached and you can play that game as much as you want. Get enough karma. You'll start to see that there'll be some, someone who will be your teacher at some point. And I thank every woman in my life that I've had relations with. I thank you for teaching me in some way. I want to go on record with that because I feel like it's something that I've always, I now get it that I was moving a little bit reckless and, the early times with the music and everything going on. And there were, there were people who were trying to get to my heart and I was just like, nope, got this thing. It's easier to keep it arm's length and it just doesn't work like that. So two questions on that then. Mm. What was the evidence or the story mm. that your, parent, your parents' relationship taught you or left you with, okay. for better or for worse, and then that first heartbreak? What were the two stories those two incidents okay. told you about relationships? So having no modeling of what real relationship is it it showed me early from from mum and dad as much as i love them with all of my heart that being single is the best way to get through life just stay single because i never saw my mother with another partner i never really saw my dad with another partner 
um, and I have sisters and brothers, but I never, I, I, but I, I'd never, and of, of my dad's other relationships that he had. Um, and I love them equally, but it's just, I never had any clear reason to say that relationship works. And then it reinforces. So the story adds on later on in your life. You start to see how people are with each other who are in relationships and you get friends who are in relationships and they're maybe cheating on their partner or you're seeing how uh, there's been scenarios where a girl says she's, she's in a relationship and thankfully it hasn't been husband or anything, but there's been relationships. I'm not going to be that the guys say I, I've never met a girl yeah. who's in something. And I tell you a story that I was, I was breaking up. We're not really in it, but you're, you're starting, it's reinforcing the same thing of, well, stay single then. Yeah, yeah, don't yeah. get involved in all this because you, your heart will be protected and life is good and we can keep at arm's length. Then link that into the, the first breakup, first heartbreak. Heart was open, gave everything, relationship, I'm all in. Like I'm going to, as a child, I was like, okay, it's hard. Psychologically, you, you don't really understand what's going on in your, in your family, your parents, but you just, at school now, I'm, you see a girl, you're like, oh man, I'm falling, I'm falling for you. And she's into you and it's all happening. And it could have been, I think it was only like about a week, week and a half, yeah? The break. Yeah? Really? It wasn't, it was, so this one we're talking early, early days. Mm. But when your heart is fully open, yeah. the crushing feeling I had after that set the tone for the rest of my life until now I've unpacked the whole thing, which, which all goes hand in hand with some of the songs I've written on albums before, where I'm talking about breakups. There's a song called Thief in the Night, which is about a girl who, like, wh why did you have to, end up being with my best friend. Like why did, there's moments where I'm looking back thinking when I was writing that song, what was I feeling? I was feeling the same heartbreak that I had or the same zero understanding of what relationship is. And then now I see it's all about relationship. It's all about opening your heart up again. And the same feeling that I think we both share when you said that you had your moments of the trigger points and you're like, mm. I had to open up again. And you met someone who met you at a place to help you through that, which is even better when you meet someone who's conscious and gets it and says, yeah. I've got you. I, I know baby steps if we need to, but I'm with you. Yeah, mm -hmm. I'm at that place now where I'm like, ah, Do you my think heart's, your heart's open. open. My heart's open, man. Yeah. It's open in a way that I'm, I'm down. If it, if something tried to try to close it down, I'm open as much as I was when I first had my heart open. And I, I wouldn't have said that maybe in a few years back. The journey has kind of rapidly kind of entered into a phase where I just know that that's the, the, the truth of the matter. And where are you relationship wise? Single at the moment. Single. Which is, again, you have, especially as, as, as a guy, and I can only really kind of speak on my experiences and, and we, we tend to, our actions have to line up with the way that we're, we're feeling. And, and I felt that there was times when I was talking a good talk, but the way I'm, the way I'm acting is no different than what I was, how I was acting before. So then there's a part where you have to pull back the faders and be like, okay, well, this means that I can't enter into things where it's purely, this had changed long, to, uh, 10 years ago for me, that the, the objectifying of women, that, that thing, there was something where I had to just check myself and be like, what is this patterning that you have of, of a look and how someone's got to be? And, and that's all part of the same thing that was happening as a, as a kid. That it was, it was very dreamy, but without the, relationship and now it's flipped i i look for a relationship in 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 i want to have a situation where i can connect with you now regardless of the look if we're not going to a place where we can go there we can mm. laugh laugh is one of the biggest values of of, of any relationship mm. if someone makes me laugh cry uncontrollably you've always got half of my heart already yeah mm -hmm. because that's going to save you when the relationship has its ups and downs so the, the down is when you need someone who can bring that because trust me the romantic phase 
as as we all know, that's intoxicating. Yeah, when you wake up after the hangover and it's real, you're still having the same feeling and love starts then. Mm. That hangover, right then, that's when you're going to ask yourself, am I really in love? The romantic thing, that's just a bit of sweetness. And have, have you had a long-term relationship? <sighs> See, it would sound so short for so many people. For me, it felt long. Two and a half years was mm. probably my longest relationship. And oh, Same as me. And, and even then, like, I don't feel like I opened my heart. I, I really felt that the girl was really trying to get me to, to break down some walls. And I, I go on record that as, as toxic as things can go, with a little bit of time and separation, you look at it, look it back and you say, thank you, because you taught me so much about how I was moving and how I was going on. And I'm a better man for that. Because now I can open up my heart like this. Because a lot of guys don't want to talk like that. They want to keep it cool. Yeah, of course. They want to talk one of the other things, talking about things that kind of invalidated us when we were younger or that we were aspiring to, I saw this quote and I actually saw a picture of the estate you lived on. Mm. And it's, um, I'm going to say, it's not the estate that I would wish to have lived on. <laughs> I don't want to criticise, you mm. know, an area, but it's not, it, it didn't look, I saw a, like a grey apart, apartment block and it, yeah, it looked yeah, like yeah. a, a, quite, a you know, council estate. It was a council yeah, estate, yeah. yeah. Um, and you, the quote you said was, you were a kid looking out of your bedroom window at the estate car park, imagining jacuzzis. Huh. Do, do you know what? I think to correct the quote okay, even more. Please, yeah. yeah, because the jacuzzi one, like, it's funny because I was talking about this only yesterday about like, when I was speaking about Fill Me In, and I was like, yeah, I was like, jumped in the jacuzzi. And I was thinking, what jacuzzi was I actually jumping in? Because last time I checked, you were in a, a two bedroom flat with your mum, yeah? So the only jacuzzi you were jumping in was your bath, yeah? <laughs> so that's, let's put that on record. And you were in a four by four, yeah? Okay, yeah, cool. Yeah. So which driving license did you have at that point? Because you were only like 15, 16 when you were writing that song. It was aspirations. Aspirations. But yeah. looking out of that window, overlooking that car park, what my grandmother brought to, to the table in terms of like, I mean, the love. My mum, just with my family, I'm just very grateful for that upbringing. But my grandma, as grandmas do, and I make sure you you get the right food in, in you, make sure you wear the jacket, you know what I mean? It's going to get cold, it's going to rain later on. And you're like, grandma, and then it rains. They just have this wisdom, yeah? Mm. But she had a beautiful little garden in the house that she lived. And it was like five minutes away from where I lived. And I was just like, that for me would, was, an, was enough as an inspiration to say, if I could have a house with a garden in Southampton, we're good here. I mean, little did I know that how it would cascade from the music into yeah just that that times 10 in terms of yeah. just like my eyes being open but it was that inspiration for my grandma and I looked at the car park and it was like it kept me on my I kept me on my grind like council estate uh working class family growing up made me have to make ends meet where secondary school wasn't really setting me up for when I leave here I was like I was already doing my market the stall selling of uh, chocolates at school, already had that going on. I was already doing mixtapes. So that was my kind of go-to in the barbers selling mixtapes for 10 pounds that I'd be doing at home, which would buy another piece of equipment that I'd get another speak, another pair of speakers or another mini disc player to record on. Then I was getting a printer so I could print my own covers. Then I, I, I was, everything I kind of am doing now, weirdly enough, it's no different than what I was doing when I was a kid. I literally had my whole, whole little factory of, making tunes, trying to have a little business going on. So I could make ends meet in my own way without having to try and pull money from my mum because she already had her own things going on and she supported me beyond. Like, I think she was going deeply into overdrafts just to make my my life feel comfortable. You got the Sega Mega Drive, right? With Sonic the Hedgehog and those those games, yeah? So I brought my memories for a second. <laughs> yeah, you got the, but 
when I think back, there was my, the, wherever my money was get, where my mum was getting this money from, like she was deeply in debt. So when you look back, you say, mum, the love I have for you, like nine to five and making me feel like I was getting everything that any other kid was getting. You know what I mean? But, and my dad, you know what I mean? Like he, he supported, he would, he would never, no one could cross me. No one, no one could do anything bad to my dad have me. They'd have to cross my dad. And that was the kind of, and that protection is good to a certain degree. But then when you grow up, dad's not there to do the thing. So how, where's that part? So you're having to understand, I've got so much feminine energy in me and that part, but I need the mm. speaking your truth, action now. So it's- The yang. It's a, it's a, the yang, my man, yeah, yeah. the yang, yeah. the yang. So you talk about music there and it, one of the things that was really remarkable reading through your story is how early music came into your world mm. and how early you started like selling mixtapes. And I sat here with, I've sat here with many mu musicians and it tends, tended to happen a little bit later in life. Even Diplo sat here last week and okay. for Diplo, it was, I don't know, he was 25 or something before he really started going in music. But you yeah. were, you were young. Mm. I know your dad had an influence in that because he was very into reggae yeah. and he was in a reggae band, right? Yes. But where did music show up in your life? And then, and how did that obsession kind of like take hold? Um, I mean, it was early. It, like I said, when I earlier on, when I said like you do a little high five when you come into the world. I feel that, and you lose sort of the cognitive understanding as to what's going on and why we're here. And then, but there's something intuitively that's pulling you in certain directions. And as a child, you very much honour that. You just go in the direction. So I was always intrigued by the little high five setup my mum had it in the flat with a big box of records, and I'd just be flicking through them. Um, and I and there was a, a vinyl in there. There was Ebony Rockers, which is my dad's reggae group. Which more recently, he, there's a mural now in Southampton they've put on on, on Ogle Road. Huge mural that, that says about Ebony Rockers, and I'm thinking, wow, wow I'm so proud of my dad. I was like, yes, dad, because you are a musician in your heart, bass guitar player. The 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 group were talking about um, social issues that were going on in the 70s, 80s, and being able to put that on record and talk about injustices that were going on in their lives in Southampton and have it on record. But now you're getting recognized for that. Oh man, like I just love, love my dad for that. It's like, I'm just so happy for him. So I was looking at records and I pulled out his record and I'd be like, Ebony Rockers. And my mom would say, yeah, that's your dad's group. And I'd be like, well, my dad's like early though. I'm talking like five, six years old looking like, well, my dad's in a group. So I know that's definitely there's some lineage there. There's there's DNA that's come through musically. My mum was always into Stevie Wonder and Michael Jackson. Uh, my first ever seven inch I ever bought was, uh, it was Human Nature. Oh, really? What, Michael Jackson? Yeah, because it, it, it was on a seven inch. It was in a, there was a small little box next to the, hmm. the 12 inch. Um, it's the first one I bought. That's one, let me tell you, tell you right. It was the first one I bought, first song I ever bought. So that's why, and the, I mean, look at the lyric of the song. I yeah, mean, it's, yeah. it couldn't be any more perfect as a, as a song of like being conscious and understanding the world. So yeah, so I, got, I had a, and, and there was there was the bit of Donny Osmond in there because my mum was a big fan of the Osmonds, which was <laughs> a big group back in the day. Um, mixed with the Stevies and the Michaels and 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 then also having my dad's reggae, deep reggae from Beres Hammond to Sanchez. Uh, Terra Fabulous, Buja Banton, Beanie Man, Bounty, like early, like I'm a sound man at heart. I think when I'm in the studio, people are like, you literally are Buja Banton, but no one's actually see, like hearing you do this. Yeah, because <laughs> I go into this 
reggae, Kilimanjaro, David Rodigan, uh, Black Cat sound system in me. So when I hear see Carnival, I'm just like, <laughs> yeah. it's me sitting up, posted up with a little bit of rice and chicken, <laughs> uh, a little Budweiser by a speaker and I'm good. <laughs> so yeah, man, that music started off early and then I just, I just felt like it, I just was gravitating towards it. When was the first time you made music in any kind of context? Um, first time I made music was my dad got me a, a hi-fi system called Studio 100. For anyone who knows that, it was like a big box, like huge like box with loads of faders on the front. He came home one day, like he just came to the house, said, Craig, I got you this Studio 100. I'm like, whoa, what am I supposed to do with this? I have no idea. So, so it had loads of faders, loads of microphones with different colored um, foam capsules on the top. It looked the, the business with, a, with a, a record deck on top, two twin cassette decks and lots of switches that I didn't understand what was going on. But I was excited because I was like, wow, this is the first time I might be able to record something. So I was just fully invested. And when you're a kid, you learn all the things, you know, all the. So I started to record, I would have said I was 11, 11, 12 years old when that came through. And I, you put a TDK cassette tape. Um, there was a D90, was like the basic uh, one or you, if you're feeling kind of saucy with it, you have like a chrome or a, <laughs> or a metal, like they were £2.49, those ones. But if you went for the normal D night, it was like a little 69p one. I put, I buy two of them. You record into one tape. So I put the first lead line of something. And a lot of my early songs were just sounding like I was literally just lifting the vocals from every other song that I was listening to. And mm -hmm. I, I didn't quite get the memo of, oh, well, we have to change the melody that much for it to not be sounding like I'm singing Jodeci freaking you or boys to men why does it sound like you literally just changed like the the road to street on the end of the road you have to do a bit more than that which i kind of you'll learn quickly if you don't get the memo yeah <laughs> um but yes yeah, so i start to bounce the the vocals down so you, you sing onto one cassette you put that in the bottom uh, tape cassette you then put a fresh one in the top and you let that play and you record on top so you were dubbing on top of your vocal the quality was diminishing every time you did that yeah because this is mm. old school stuff but i was starting to finish a song. I was feeling very, very proud of myself that I could actually write a song. How old? I would have been like, yeah, like 11, 12 years old. 11, 12 years old. Mm. But yeah, that kind of led into a world very nourished with R&B, reggae, but also the the pop soul element. Terence and Derby was the first show I ever went to at the Guildhall in Southampton. It blew my mind. I saw this guy, I was front row. I just saw him like, he was moving like, Prince with Marvin Gaye, but he had the voice of like a Stevie Wonder with Michael Jackson. The Hardline, according to album, was like, it was like seven, eight million albums. It was a huge record for him with the, the breakout song, Sign Your Name Across My Heart. Again, look at the, 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 the messages, Sign Your Name Across My Heart, yeah? Mm. I, I'm like, finally, we're getting the message now. I need to let someone sign it fully. You know what I mean? And capitals hold that. <laughs> but changed my life. I was like, if I can, I'd love to do what that guy does. From 11, 12, where you're messing around with those cassettes mm. to, I think when I've, I've heard you kind of, kind of recount it, your first break was winning that songwriting contest with Damage, wasn't it? Yes. Was that, would you consider that to be your first kind of like break opportunity? You know what? It's like, it gave me, it gave me the first taste of, of um, reinforcing that I could actually do this. Like it, I thought it was a break, like I was going to, we've done it here yeah yeah. i've written the song i'm ready it's on the back of it's on the b-side of wonderful tonight the eric clapton cover which was the lead single 
I'm telling everyone, it went to number two in the charts. I'm telling all my friends it's because of obviously my song, I'm Ready, mm. not the classic Wonderful Tonight that they've covered, right? Mm. Um, but I thought it was off the back of them. And I actually sang vocals on that, did BVs on the song. They let me come up to London, met the guys. I was just like, wow, this is like a dream come true. But I didn't, off the back of it, it was like, okay, it was in the shops for a few weeks, but nothing, it went quiet after that. How old were you when you won that songwriting competition for the boy band Damage? How I would have you? said I was 14 around Fuck. that. So 14, 14, 15, you yeah. start messing around with music at about 11-ish, you mm. said, right? And then at 14, you win the songwriting competition for the boy band Damage. Mm. Um, and that's what, like three years of just continuing to mess, mess around and develop and practice and just play around with music, right? Between that time? Yeah. Yeah, it was, it was, um, uh, and again, the support of my mum and dad in, in, in ways that now I'm just like so thankful for of bringing that studio 100 piece of equipment that for me to record, you know, my first record deck, all, all those things now. I was the kid looking through the music store, like, oh, wish I could have that. Wish I could that one, if I could get that one equalizer, it would, I could mix it. I was just that nerdy with it. And they would always somehow have a 10 pound and a 20 pound ready for me to help me out. And yeah. I had my, my chocolate thing going on. So There's some, something really interesting about you saying nerdy with it, because the guests that I sat here with, specifically the musicians, it always seems to be the case that when they were younger or just before, you know, maybe in the 10 years before they blew up or whatever, they were just like really nerdy with music. Mm. There wasn't really an intention of being the greatest or getting the number one albums. They were just like obsessed. Even Wretch 32, when he sat here, it was the same thing. Mm. He was just clearly just nerdy with it. Mm. Very, very young age. And I think that's that's really important to point out because the pathway to getting to where you got to in your life right. isn't that doesn't appear to be... Um, or at least the, the, the starting point doesn't appear to be this obsession with becoming a, a superstar. Mm. It's this kind of nerdy fascination because you spent three years between 11 and 14 just messing around with cassettes on some piece of hardware that your dad bought you. Yeah, of course. It's, it, 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 it did feel that my obsession with music, like when I, when I look back, and it's, it's different now because I have, this, I have a, the same kid in me that wants to do the same thing that I may have done in those periods of time, especially when I start collecting vinyl. Like I knew every producer. I knew where the snare was on this track was taken from a Changing Faces song over there. And this record over here uses the kick drum from there. The bass is used. I was in it. Like I had everything in alphabetical order with the plastic um, sleeves that they all went in. Room was getting to the point where I couldn't fit in my room for records. So I was really living it to the point where I'd swap shop with records. I'd be like, like other DJs would say, I, I got to London, get records, bring them back. Those days, DJs were the go-to. Like it wasn't like you go on New Music Friday and you get a thousand songs to kind of to, to look through. It was like, if the DJ played in the club, you better go speak to the DJ, find out where he got it from because he, he's got, there's 10 copies maybe and there's a promo that's not going to come out for six months. L literally songs were like, you had time because mm. it was physical. Where are you going to go? You can't copy this unless you've got a lathe and you're going to start to print acetates in your house. So you had to wait. So I'd, when you went out to London, especially because this was like the hub for where everything was being made and printed up, I'd come back sometimes from to Southampton with some record. DJs all know, where you get that, Craig? Where you get that? I said, yeah, you know, no, I'll swap you a Faith Evans, I Just Can't, and a Jade for the tune that you got. And I said, mm, maybe give me a little 10 pound extra for that. You could, you could, it was all vibes, man. I just, it was such a fun time because things were slower mm. and I love it now, but it's just, there's a lot to get 
into, there's a lot of music being released just to, to keep up with the flex of it. You are always one decision away from taking your business to the next level. And a decision that's helped me to transform my business is moving over to NetSuite, who I'm excited to say are a sponsor of this podcast. If you don't know already, NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. It's reduced IT costs because it lives in the cloud, so you can access it from anywhere. And the cost of managing and running multiple systems because it's in one unified business management suite. My team and I don't have to worry about tasks being manual and clunky, and it means that I can be more efficient and to focus on more important things like bringing you the best episodes and guests on this show. So I become one of the 37,000 companies that have already made the move over to NetSuite. NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. So head to netsuite.com slash Bartlett for a free product tour. Back to the episode. Between 14 and 18 then, mm. what happens then for you? I'd gone from... The, the songwriting competition, uh, a moment where it was like, okay, this is the, this is the, this is the thing, but then it can carry on where, okay, well, this wasn't necessarily at the big breakthrough heavily into the, into collecting records. I started to DJ early on. I was MC at first for, uh, another DJ called DJ flash, who I respect so much because he brought a lot into my life to, to be able to be a chaperone for me. Really. He knew my dad. Um, and he was 10 years older than me. And I, that, at 14, I looked a little older as well. So I, I can kind of get, I could style it to get into clubs with him. And he'd let me be his MC. So I'd be called MC Fade. And I was just like, you know what I mean? The Fade was Chris and I just thought that was the, it's crazy. And then he'd give me like a, he'd give me a little slot uh, to, to play maybe a little 15 minutes at the end of his DJ set. So in Southampton, he was playing most of the, the kind of big clubs there. And he introduced me to the Cajun Zoo in Bournemouth. Mm-hmm. Um, we do a couple of shows in, in Portsmouth. So I was like his, I was his MC and also his box boy as well. Cause trust me, the back was getting like smashed, picking up those heavy boxes. Yeah, it's different. When you're wearing the chain with the MP3 on it, it's different when you're picking up those boxes, right? Your, your squat game's gotta be really on the point. Your glutes will be, will be fired up. But I'd always do this thing with him where I'd be like, Flash, actually that girl over there, I was just trying to find like a girl he had his eyes on and he'd be, he'd be watching all through the night. I'd be like, I think she, she keeps looking at you, man. You need to go, you need to go and speak to her. He goes, yeah, but I goes, don't worry, I got you. I'll, I'll let me, you go speak to her, man. Cause she's gonna, she's gonna go and it's all gonna, okay, cool. Le, le, handle the fort. I'll handle the fort, don't you worry. So I play like a little half an hour thing. Yeah, he's skirting around. Should I go and speak to her? Should I? And he's just standing next to her. He goes over for the for the move. She blows him out completely because you were never looking at him at all for the whole thing, right? <laughs> I've got a 30 minute DJ set in there. He's come back like, great. It's like she didn't even, I goes, oh no, she was looking at you all the time. I'm not sure. <laughs> You've got to find your ways, yeah. But I learn from between that 14 to, to, to really to 16 was a period of DJing intensely. Then I started to go off and do my own, DJing sets with MC Alistair, who is part of the Artful Dodger, who goes mm. and does MC sets now. Um, and then it was kind of, it was moving. I was at college. I'd gone from secondary school now. I was at college, a city college. I was doing an MVQ level two in electronics. It was like the closest thing I could get to music because there wasn't like uh, production uh, courses like they do now, which would have been great. Back then it was like, how do you forge a trumpet out of metal and how was, how do you make a guitar f- from scratch with wood? And I'm like, you know, I just want to know how Timberland 
makes that or Rodney Jerkins makes the, the, the vocal sound so good. Could someone show me that? Mm-hmm. And there wasn't a course. So I thought, let me do electronics because at least that gets me closer to circuit boards. Mm-hmm. Richard Sounds was around the corner. Had some wicked equipment in there. I thought even if I got a, a, a job working there, it would be great. I'd be near de- decks. I'd be near twin tape cassette decks. Maybe I can get a little discount. So that was my road. I was going down DJing, MCing there. Never thought it would necessarily me meeting Mark Hill and Pete Devereux from the Artful Dodger which is where it, it really then transcended. Tell me about that. So in one club, it was called Old Orientals, um, 10 minutes around the corner from where I, my, I was living with my mum. Was DJing downstairs, uh, R&B hip hop set. Upstairs was House and Garage night. Um, Mark Hill and Pete Devereux, who the original Artful Dodger, were playing upstairs. Now these are early doors for garage music. So you're hearing like, it's a London thing was playing um, Scott Garcia, which was like a classic garage tune from them days. And it was even like the, the lessons in love was coming through Robbie Craig and there was just tunes playing play. And I always got to pop my head up and be like, it wasn't packed up there, but I was just like, this is, this is a vibe. It's got like, it's like it's, they're layering R and B stuff now. It felt over this skippy, I don't know, what do you call it? it, was, it was, I don't know what two-step was. It was like, it's a speed garage. It was with like some eclectic thing that's not house, but it feels UK. And then all of a sudden we got into conversation and I was talking about all these songs that I've been recording at home where I didn't have a producer or someone who could create the music for me. Um, I was using instrumentals and stuff to just sing over, like you'd hear a freestyle. And then literally the... the I mean, this is where it's so divine, like the serendipity of it was so beautiful. Mark Hill, who ended up producing the whole of Born to Do It album, said, I've been looking for someone who writes songs. Like I, I do music, like I've got the music thing locked up. I need someone who, who writes songs you can sing. And I was like, God, oh, this is a perfect marriage. And he says, oh, I've got a studio. It's like five minutes from here at a place called Ocean Village. And I was like, you can't even make this up. Like it's, it was the club, like my, my flat, the, the old Orientals place that we met, the studio was literally within a 10 minute walk. It was like all perfectly planned. And then from that, the next thing I did was record a song called uh, What You're Gonna Do, which was the first release from Artful Dodger. And I remember it being printed up on a on vinyl. They did their own thing, boxed it all up. I felt sweet. When you're on a vinyl, I thought I'd made it at that point. I was on vinyl, yeah? And they got up in a van and they took it up to London. They go into the record stores and they say, look, we got them to take two boxes here at this record store and uh, so in Derby Street and Soho Records there and Brixton, we've got some. I was like, and something started to build, my man. Like, I can't, I was like just happy to be on a record. But then all of a sudden I was getting people saying who they've come back down from London saying, I'm hearing your tune getting played on pirate radio stations, you know? I'm like, what? I'm hearing like it's going off, drop the funk, drop the bass, hit it. And I'm like, what are you? F-? And I like, and, but then random people saying, oh, well, I, I was coming back from London, it's, it's getting played. Like I went to a, a club, it went off. The DJ spanned it like four times back to back. Something was bubbling. And next thing you know, I got a call from Public Demand who were the label that were, that had got invested in that, in that record. They'd done a licensing deal for that song. They said, do you want to come up to London and start doing some, some PA, some, some performances for this song. And so I'd love to. So I'd call up my mate Clinton in his yellow fiesta. Remember clearly, got a Jamaican flag in the back, yeah? Just like he had it proudly there. He had like the, the sub speaker in the boot going crazy. The, the thing was tuned up like he was coming, going to Notting Hill Carnival. Yeah, the sound system was way more than the car, right? It sounded crisp. So we up there, I'd slip him like 50 pounds to, to get me up there, get me back. 
And literally I go up, I was getting like two, 250, 300 pound for, for a PA, which was good money. I'm like, wow, this is real money now from selling chocolates to this kind of money. I can buy this record, I can buy that. And I go to the Coliseum um, in Vauxhall, um, the end. Um, and I started twice as nice was the, the big, big name at the time. And I got out there and seen what you're going to do. And I'd, I'd go on stage and I was this young 15 year old kid. I was 16 at the time, walked out and I, the, the DJ, even more like a, there was, any DJ could play because the, the Artful Dodger, we had this sort of agreement that if Artful Dodger were with me performing, we're doing a set together, we'd sort of half the amount for the, for the, for the fee. And if I was going off doing a performance, then I would just take the money. And if they did a, a DJ set somewhere, they'd take it. So we just had a nice little agreement going on. So I'd go up there and the DJ would, you say, you ready, ready? I'd go, yeah, I'm ready, ready. And he'd be like, chuk, 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 drop the funk, drop the bass, hit it. And that's for the first time walking out, seeing it go off. I was just like, this is mad. And before I even got to sing, the guy, they're spinning it up and everyone's going, bo, 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 <laughs> which is where led to Bo Selector with Rewind. Why I was saying that in the song. It's like, bo, 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 Selector. That was the phrase as a cultural reference for that music. And I think that that's where it kind of just, it, it just, it, it just was, exponential after that it just went from what you're going to do then rewind was starting to go do its thing and people were just losing their minds to that song like i remember my first personal form PA of that song i wasn't sure if the crowd were feeling it because it goes into this this bass line in the chorus which is very it feels like a halftime r&b record let me so hear like, it so it's like dum 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 so it's like re-e-wind. When a crowd say both the legs are re-e-wind. You just got the bass line. It's halftime. You could just be slow jam. And I saw people literally, they were standing like, and it wasn't like we're not feeling it, but it's like, we don't know what to do here. Yeah. Like, because the verse is making moves, yeah, on a dance floor. You got the garage thing, it's cool. And then it goes, and people were like, and then when it, and that was this USP in the end, mm. people were like, yeah, there's that tune that does that half time, I don't know what, baseline thing, but it goes slowed. And it set the tone for the whole thing. That song right there, still, it's like my baby. Cause I felt it when I walked home with my Sony Walkman, with my headphones on, on my Jack Jones, just like walking back, like just listen to it, thinking, I don't need, there's certain songs where I don't need any feedback. I don't need them to tell me what they think about it, how they feel. I know in my soul, this here is the one. And it wasn't the one from, it's going to go off in a club. It's just going to go off when I go back to my flat. I had a huge sub speaker that was probably bigger than me. Yeah, that I had in the corner, bigger than most of my room. I had to squeeze my bed out almost <laughs> to get it in. When I pressed play on that and it came through that speaker, I was like this, I'm good. I got the, the full uh, feeling that I needed. So from then I was like, if this is the same for anyone else and they feel like this, then it's gone clear and it ended up being gone clear. And that is a, a timeless, timeless record. I mean, I listened to it before you came in here. So I was listening to it and I was like, fuck it, this could have come out last week. You know what I mean? It feels right. like that. Do you see what I mean? Like I played it and I was like, this could be, this would be a hit now. Do you know what I mean? Bro, so, I appreciate you. You know what I mean though? Like, hundred. Yeah, yeah. It's that, it's that, it's a, it's a, it was a cultural record. It was, it feels very timeless. Like I, I did a show the other day, or even yesterday, last night and I drop it in. The millennials are going crazy for it. The day yeah. ones are there going yeah. like crazy. It's just like, it's, it's one of those ones. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know yeah. what I mean? So. Yeah. so that leads you up to the, to the point where you start to release your first solo single, mm. Fill Me In. Yeah. Talk to me about that and that whole process because that went straight to number one. Mm. Um, 
from what you've said, I know it changed your life, right? From going, doing these PAs and clubs to doing, I think you did Wembley three nights in a row or some, yeah, some was, crazy, crazy, in, a, in the space of a couple of months as well. Yeah. It, it, I mean, it went like from like zero to a hundred, the, the, literally. That's why it was kind of like, behind the scenes, funny enough, even though I said zero to a hundred, there was a lot of learning curve that I was learning. So doing the DJing, doing performances in front of a, a, a club, a club PA, or even before that, when I was doing my DJ and stuff as an MC, when the, the, the vinyl skipping and the crowd are looking at you like, yo, what, and, and you've got to improvise quickly. So man's going into some kind of MC, like, you know, some of them, hey, some of them, I love this. Some of them, I hold the mic, I hope they're trying to find another bit of vinyl to put on because this one's going to keep skipping. My hopeless, hopeless, when I write, blah, 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 like this, jump around in my Adidas, crazy. And everyone's just like, whoa, and then I get it to mix somehow perfectly, yeah? And I'm sweating, yeah, because I'm thinking I nearly mashed the whole thing up. And after people come up saying, Craig, that was sick when you did that thing. How did you do that? Why are you sweating so much? <laughs> like, it's not even hot. The air condition is blasting. I was like, if only you knew. But it, it teed me up for performances going forward. So when we got to film in, I, I can just remember something happening when I was doing, there was a, a club called Sound, I think it was, on Leicester Square. And at this time now, Rewind had been released. It had gone to number two. People didn't really know who I was. They knew the name, which was... You know what I mean? Like you can get that was always the, the using the name was always like a it's like a tag, the DJ tag thing. Like you, you put your name, DJ Khaled would do it. It'd be like I'd be like Craig David all over you. So you knew who was on the record just in case you you were confused, yeah. And then that then became sort of my intrinsic trademark thing that I did throughout that Born to Do it album. Um, so it'd just be like Craig David, it's another one, like all that, all that kind of stuff. Um, but yeah, I remember doing this a performance. I I had an interview in in Capital FM. And I had to get across Leicester Square to go and do this uh, a performance of it and sound, which Capital were doing like radio performances from there. I knew something had really changed when the security, there was a security guard and he had to put me up. I went there with their, it just being calm. I went into Capital, did the interview. The security guard had to put me up on his shoulders to get me across Leicester Square to sound because there were fans going crazy. like. Real, I could for for a moment in that period of time, the the Justin Bieber thing, the even before the Drakes. I mean, it was like it was that fever pitch where it was just like, whoa, BTS flex. It was like madness, like pandemonium. I, I just like whoa, ripping, pulling, like it was whoa. I was thinking something's changed, and I went and did the performance, and then Feel Me In was 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 building up to be my first number one. And it was my first solo single that went to number one. And, I, and it, was, it was a song that was released the same day as, as Destiny's Child saying my name. So to have a number one in the charts with a group that I'd grown up with posters on my wall and like thinking, this is crazy. Say, no, say my name is one of my favorite R&B songs of all time. So to, just to fulfill me in to do what it did, I knew something had changed. I, I just knew, well, it was quite obvious. And I was on this wave. It was euphoric. There was nothing I can I can put my finger on. It was like it was it was everything but more. It went from everything I touched was turning to gold because everyone wanted a piece of me, and I was doing acoustic performances, which was to give a different feel for, for film me, and which I think was a really clever uh, move from at the, at the time. My, my record label um, was was half owned uh, by my my now manager uh, Colin Lester. Uh, Telstar and Capital were involved. And it, it was just like, we wanted to find ways that it just didn't, um, 
exclude me from other radio stations and made it feel like it wasn't just this this radio thing. So we did performances like on on uh, TFI Fridays and on uh, Jules Holland, which were acoustic. And all of a sudden I went from the rising garage, quote unquote star, to, wow, it's, it's actually a song here. He's mm -hmm. writing songs. And then the next songs, I think, kind of reinforced that it wasn't just, just garage. And then from seven days and then to get to walking away because mm -hmm. walking away, it gone clear at that point. Really had gone clear. Like we were, I was in France nearly every other week in Paris doing, uh, radio interviews and I'd be in, in doing the whole of Scandinavia, then I'd be in Germany, then we'd be getting a flight over to America and it just started the whole... How old were you through this period? So you start, I mean, Fill Me In was when you were 18. Yeah, so, yeah, so we were within the album dropped the same year. So 2001 was when I went over to the States. So it would have been like 19, like... How does, how does an 18, 19 year old deal with that? Because, you know, with all the attention comes a lot of negative stuff. Mm. It's like unavoidable. It comes with the territory, even with the like the, the fame and people clambering on you and stuff. Yeah. It, it changes your psychology takes a shift or you find out who you really are. Right. They say that a lot. Like you find out who yeah. your demons, right. Cause now you've got the money, you've got the power, you've got this admiration. So talk to me about like the, the other side of that, mm. that, that meteoric rise. I'd say, channeling in of how I, or, or tuning in to how I was at that time, I, I say the, it was euphoric. There was, the, I was like, whoa, everything's new. You're doing new places and going to the best restaurants and your eyes are wide open. You're on a plane to this country. And I went, I was at the House of Blues in, in, in America doing, we had three nights there. And the, the first night, and I, and, I, and I tell this because it kind of just to give context to how bizarre it was. So, Remember, I've come from your flash. I think that girl actually over there. Let me do a little mix for you over here. Get a little half an hour in the set. Jump fast forward a few years later, House of Blues, three nights in a row. First night, Missy Elliott is, has come to, to watch the show. I'm looking up thinking, this is crazy. Like, uh, I can't stand the rain and, and just Missy Elliott, just, just the hot. Next night, I'm there. I look up in the same balcony. Jennifer Lopez is there. I'm like, wow. And I don't want to sound like I'm name dropping, but I want it to be, to give context. I'm, yeah, it's just this, this nice. facts, yeah? The, 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 the following night, sorry, how am I missing this? It was, it was Missy and Beyonce. Fuck off. Then it was Jennifer Lopez. Then on the last night, I look out into the crowd and there's a lot of kind of attention on one in, in particular gentleman that's in the crowd who's singing. And I couldn't quite work out because the lights were too, too dark. So I got the, the front of house to turn the lights up. And I look in the crowd and I'm singing Walking Away and I look over and I see Stevie Wonder you singing Walking Away. And I'm just like, I mean, what do you say at that point? I, would, I felt emotional. I felt, because it was Stevie Wonder from the record collection from my mum's my stuff. Beyonce, I've got Destiny's Child on my wall. I had Jennifer Lopez on my wall. Missy Elliott, I'd only been listening to before I come out. It was just like, you can't make this up. It was almost like, Yes, you've, you've behind the scenes and bam, here it is. And then I got to meet him at the end and he'd come with Quincy Jones, who we all know is the producer of all of the huge hits for Michael Jackson. And then Quincy said, you know, like MJ, no, he said it even more like, like coded. He's like, yeah, um, it's like M, he said. It's like M's got your album, like it's just like vibing. I said, oh, M. Yeah, you know MJ and Michael. Michael's got like, he's got the album. He loves Born to Do It. He's been listening, gave it to his friends. And I, was like, I was like, let's stop this. If we can, if this is, if this is the thing, we've arrived, we're good. I've got my fix. There's not much more I could ask for. But it was literally the start of 
an incredible roller coaster ride, which left, left the later years, I think, which we get into, it, it harps back to that. And I can I can see where the, the cracks were starting. Because when to answer your question about the other side of it, it was so euphoric and I was so swept up on it. It was like getting on a surfboard and actually being on the wave. And you're you're doing I, know, I never use this word, but like the most gnarliest, like you're the gnarly wave. It's gnarly. You know what I mean? You're the, 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 it's a rip, rip curl and it's going crazy. You're through the middle of the eye of it. You're on it. You're not coming off. But then there was a point when the next album, Slicker Than Your Average, dropped, which was only like a year or so later, 2002. Had great success with Watch Your Flavor and, and, the, and the songs were hitting. But there was this, Born To Do It had now done 7 million albums. Six Which, times plat platinum. Oh. Six times platinum. It's, it's, it's still, still Mad. crazy. And when you said about the Wembley Arena, three times sold out, I'm standing outside the, the sign, I've got it at my mum's house, like there's a picture of, and I'm like, you just can't make it up. It's, it, it was so beautiful. And I'm so grateful for those times. But I started to see from the slick and your average time where the record label would already start to quota, oh, it's going to do 10, 11 million, obviously slick and your average, because now the trajectory is going to be has to go higher than this. So then when the album ended up coming out, it ended up selling 3.5 million albums. I'm 3.5 million albums. Yeah, at the time, I remember that there was this feeling in the company of, oh, mm, right, only 3.5. And I'm, I'm, I'm impressionable. I'm a young kid. I don't know. I, I've just got into this, the, the music business. And you're telling me that that's not a good thing. Because the last time I checked, the feeling I'm getting is, I just saw 3.5 million albums. Give 3.5 million to any artist now. Like, we're good. We're, 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 you're... So I'd already started to buy into, there was some, it was, there was a trajectory, the trajectory was starting to go in a different place that, that, I wouldn't even know about figures. I didn't really care about albums, sales. I was just like, I'm just happy to be here and I'm making music and I'm doing what I love, my dream. But that was the first learning curve of the, 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 the defining of defining of product and defining of you being a commodity that has to achieve something now that you've set it up here. Whereas I thought it got all fun when you start to do it. I thought it got more playful. No, 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 it got more serious and there's more cooks in the kitchen and everyone's got an opinion of the song you should be releasing. Expectation. Beyond expectation, Beyond. the curse of all I, happiness and joy, and you must know this. You're just trying to equate what your self worth through so many other people's expectation of you, like you said. So you, I'm trying to say, okay, cool. Well, we're here. I'm a songwriter. I'd always, I'd always had a really great rapport with my manager, Colin Esto, who's been with me like for. I got, I, I love the conversations that we we've, we've had over the years, and and him even saying at early doors that. I can't guarantee you success, I, but I'll do everything in my power to, to to protect you and keep you safe so you can do your thing. And having those kind of confidence in, in, in the people that you're working with is, is, is paramount when you do start to get these, the feedback trickling through. Because I never was like, oh yeah, what are today's midweeks? I wasn't really too interested in like finding out all the stats because what happens is, and, to, and you can get this now, and I say this to any aspiring artist, who's putting music out now and you're having success is literally just enjoy it fully, be immersed in it. Because if you start to check for what's going on next week, your moment when you're supposed to have the number one and you're enjoying life, you're already going to be able to see by Tuesday, Wednesday, that your numbers are already showing that you're already number three now. 
you slipped off and they're number one. So your moment of glory was actually, there was the curve. And at the point where you got the thing, which is the, the beautiful metal number one, or are you really not, you're already kind of on the decline. So it's that I had to ride that for a few more albums, if I'm being honest, to, I was making songs and they were connecting, but if it was a number four in the charts, it wasn't number one like it was before. I haven't got the same amount of time that I had to, to make those songs. I've got, haven't got enough life really. All this, those first albums, they're very seminal because it's all your life up until that point, right? And then after that, the expectation is we need it on a deadline and we need it this time and you've got to hit this. In the mix of the fact you're doing a hundred interviews and you're doing, you're flying all over the place, but still you've got to conjure up that thing. I don't know any artist that, that, that won't feel that. And hats off and kudos to anyone who is able to sustain that. But as a human being, I know that's a tall order for anyone to be able to, to continuously do. And you start to see with any of the artists who we put in from, from the Amy Winehouses to the Michael Jacksons to the Whitney Houstons, the height of success when it is like, whoa, like otherworldly, there's so much of the, the human part that's being unmet that it, it, it gets to a point where breaking point and then something happens, be it's, it's drug addiction or if it, it, it moves into mental health issues and depression, which are all so real that no human can vibrate at that level for that amount of time. And, and I, I'm thankful for those moments that kind of shaved off a little bit of the it being all go, 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 because I think that it kind of made me have to go back to a lot of things that were like when my grandmother passed away, which is on the next down story goes, I was back in my heart again. It's like, I'm writing a song like Johnny about bullying or I'm talking about Let Her Go, a song I wrote from about my grandmother to my mum to say that I know it's, it's crushing you, you've lost your mum and I've lost my grandma who's pretty much raised me. Here's a song and I want you to hear it. And those things, it started to get back in my heart because we can get heady. And when it starts to get heady, you're out of, you're not in sync with this. This is the real brains. And I've learned that now. It's, it's not, this is a, is a loyal servant to the heart. But if you go from here and then the, the, you can find the, the ways to get to A to B, but it has to start from here, you know? And you described that journey as a, as a roller coaster. Mm. So what, at what point did, did that roller coaster start heading down from that um, place you describe as euphoria to a place where you um, weren't euphoric? Talk, talk to me about the, the down part of the roller coaster. I'd say when I released uh, the Trust Me album in 2009, um, it, it just felt that there was, from where I'd started off with very cultural records like Rewind and Fill Me In, which is why we talked earlier how those songs you can play now and they still seem to hit. When I, when I look at 2009 and the Trust Me album, I feel... I felt like I was starting to m make music that was to please, please people and to tick boxes. It was like I was, there's a song called Top of the Hill, which is a lovely song. Um, I love the song, but if you listen to that song, to how it started off, it was very far removed. The type of music was becoming very live and it wasn't as, it wasn't as synth based. And, and so, which I'd drawn all my inspirations from as a, as a kid. And that's not to say that you can't experiment, but I knew at that point I was entering into a new space. And then by the time I released that album, which I was proud of, I'm always proud of the music I put out, but it wasn't connecting as well. Science Hill Delivered was uh, an album that I did just after that, which was 
I was out of a deal at the time um, just because I'd run the, the tenure of my, my, my deal. Um, so it was kind of a fresh start. I could look at different record labels. Universal were, were excited. So we did a deal with Universal. Then I was put out this album called Science Hill Delivered, which was an, a covers album. And I was singing like Dock of the Bay and the title song Science Hill Delivered from Stevie but verbatim like the originals. It wasn't some chopped and screwed. It wasn't an R&B version. It wasn't a garage thing. It wasn't like your, it was like- The same song. The same song. And I felt like it was time that I needed to just sort of check myself and just be like, are you getting the fun out of this like you used to? Do you want to continue making music like this? And thankfully the, 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 the world always, the, the universe always sort of mirrors everything that you're going through. So it mirrors your state of play of where you are. So I always felt that I was, if the feeling I was getting was being mirrored back, I'm not quite feeling this. So the world says, cool, I'll give you more of you're not quite feeling this in your circumstances that happen around you. Whereas when I was the kid growing up making the first album, I was feeling everything. I was feeling the song on the way home from the studio. I was feeling it on my sub speaker at home. I was feeling those rides up in the car to do the performance. It was feeling. Mm. And now I check in with that deeply because I know that anytime I'm not feeling it, Act from that, not from the head saying, well, I know Seal had a big covers album at the time. I think that was a good reference point. He had a huge covers album, was doing serious numbers. And that was the sentiment that Universal were, were presenting, like do a covers record, no brainer. You can sing these songs, Motown, gonna be good. It's a soul thing. And then off springboard off the back of that with your own album. That was the, the play was never really worked out that way because it, it didn't really work out as an album. It didn't hit the way it did. And there was no next album that came from off the back of that. There was a period of time where I was like, I was out of the scene for a second. And what, and what did you do then? This is when you moved to Miami? So I was in, yeah. So I was in, I was in Miami from 2010. So it was like about a yes. year after that album. And I was there for about five, six years. For the first two, three years, the best time probably of my life being out there. And anything and everything that you could possibly think of Miami being and what it was representing. But the latter period of that period, that time was where something was ringing inside of me of you're in the wrong place. And this is what intuition is very quiet. And it, and it's, 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 it, 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 it creeps up and it's, it's, a, it's, like, it's not even nagging. It's like you hear it and you just, I don't want to hear it. I want to, it's, it's all, it looks great over here. You know what I mean? It looks, it looks so aesthetically pleasing from, do you know what I mean? The car and the, the apartment and the parties and the women. And it, just, it was like the parties that were just like, every day of the week, something going on. Music isn't really getting recorded now because the voice is, is just destroyed from like shouting in a club and doing a nonsense. So music's getting pushed to the side. All those fancy toys and the vibe's starting to become more important. You know what I mean? It's like the, I, my balance of, of, actual supply and demand of music that got me there was way off. I was literally creating hardly anything. Is there shades of like you, you going up on this trajectory when you were like a younger man, 18, 19, et cetera, and then going into this place where you almost abandoned your, like your essence and your roots. And then you, that kind of culminates in you making this covers album, mm. which is almost, it's quite, it's almost a bit of a metaphor because then you were really being someone else. Like be, doing cover albums is by definition, you're covering other people's music in their own style. Totally. And then almost this, um, this period in Miami where you get into partying is, it seems like a bit of a distraction maybe or whatever, mm. trying to explore, trying to get some other pleasure from another type of life. Yeah. And then kind of going back to 
your your roots in a way where you all of that you'd tasted the shit. Yes. You'd had the Dom Perignon, you know, mm. you'd, and you and that wasn't it. So now you go back and ask yourself, what is it? What is it? And and then it seems like with TS5, you you created a new kind of expression of who Craig David is and yes. who he always was. Totally. Maybe who you had lost sight of over the years because of all these temptations and your own success. Ain't that the truth? It's when you start to realize that actually going back to the things that, and it's all back in childhood. This is the thing. When I, when I tune in, it's like the decks and the DJ and the mixtapes. That was all I was trying to do when I was doing the TS5 house party. I just wanted to feel that again. Like I'm mixing now with my little pioneer DJ setup and I'm on the microphone being the host of the most. And I just want everyone to feel that feeling that I got into the whole thing for. And if someone doesn't know what TS5 is, yeah, yeah. can you explain, just give a, an overview Quick, of what, so. exactly what it is? Yeah, so TS5 is like... um. It's when I, the performance now from the house party that it was, um, is I'm able to, cause I used to DJ when I first started off, as we've spoken about before. And I was at that point then DJ fade. So I honed all my skills on, on using vinyl and Technics 1210s. The TS5 set is, the name came from the, the apartment in Miami. And it's a show where I'm able to DJ and mix other people's records as much as drop my ones in and able to come, to come out of my, my DJ booth and sing and do a performance in a way for me that is, is giving me all the feels I got from when I was a DJ, but also I can do the performances and drop some gems in there at the same time. Like I can play a TLC, no scrubs, or I can play saying my name and then go into fill me in. I just love it. And taking that to pool parties that I did in Ibiza, I think I was trying to set the tone of like, this isn't a DJ set where I can get away with playing some songs, doing a few shots of tequila with my mates and get paid for it and go home. I just can't, like I get that can work in certain, and I have no judgment, it's do your thing. But for me as a performer, mixing the tunes is like, it's so easy now. Like with vinyl, it was like, that was a mission, but like now. So I can mix the tunes, that's nothing, but to come out of the booth, perform, do an Mm. MC thing and hit the marker back inside to get to the next song. That for me, I I pride myself on. It's given me a whole new lease of life for for festivals. So that's really what TS5 is. And it's become a phenomenal brand, phenomenal brand for for, for music partying. And it's it's funny because it's such an, it's it's quite rare that you have someone that has that kind of skill stack of all those different pieces that can do that. I think that's probably why it's been such a, such a hit is because you rarely see someone who can drop their own records, who can sing, mm. who can perform, but then who can also DJ. It's like a really interesting new thing. Totally. Yeah. I, I felt I felt it in, I got a little touch of it in the party when I was in in my house parties. I mean, and I didn't even start to put, see this is, it's beautiful when you look back at the puzzle pieces, when the picture starts to become a little bit more clearer as you've put, okay, that puzzle, that piece there meant you needed that piece to happen mm. for this one to happen. So when I was performing in my house, I wasn't actually performing any of my own songs at all. Cause I just felt like I don't want to start dropping my own songs in the middle of the thing. And then I have people come over and be like, bro, drop that, fill me in, drop mm. rewind. One girl came over and said, drop seven days. And I was like, nah, and she goes, please, it's my favorite song. And I was like, and I looked, I was like, maybe I might do a verse, just one, yeah. one little piece of the verse. And it started me, the idea of, of putting a couple of my songs in and then we started to record the set. I started to record the set and put it on SoundCloud so people could listen to it after because people were like, oh, where can I get? I'd love to listen to back to that set. Or we did sang a happy birthday to someone and it was a moment that they wanted to hear again and no one caught it. And I was like, well, let me capture this now. Mm-hmm. And that was actually 
where it flipped back into mixtape land that I then got, my manager took it into Kiss. Kiss originally were like, we can air this, put it out as a, as a show. Mm-hmm. And then it went on to Capital, Capital aired it as well and Capital Extra. So all of a sudden it was like, it's gone from a house party to a thing. And then mm-hmm. we did a couple of early shows, one, uh, two shows in Hackney to see if this house party would translate into an actual thing. And when I saw people it going off in the same way, I thought, wow, this isn't just a Miami thing, you know, it's not just in my house. It's actually people connecting with it. And since then, I guess Glastonbury was probably the, the one of the pinnacle of it because you're there in front of a crowd who are there for a myriad of different artists. And you're there performing a band set and then go into a DJ set and to see it going off. I was like, this is, <laughs> I people from Miami who were early doors, when we first did that party, which was like nine of us just messing about, having a couple of shots with playing off iTunes. To Glastonbury. To Glastonbury, they was like, it was crazy. So it just, it's always there. The pieces are always there, but time, sometimes you just need to have time and patience in this. It's so interesting looking at your story as, as like an outsider and watching that journey of you being this like huge megastar, then the, the, the downside of the rollercoaster, as you describe mm. it, and then watching you over the last like five, six, seven, eight years come back out with as almost like this completely new character, mm. but with a proposition that's as resonant as what you used to do, a very, Thank very you. different proposition. But you like, again, okay, from my like, not really paying attention to mm. what's going on in the world because I'm not really that into pop culture. You know, I used to listen to you on my Walkman and then <clears throat> there was a gap. Yeah. And then you're back in again where everyone's talking about Craig David again, but for a completely different proposition, what well, appears to be a completely different proposition. Mm. That's not common or easy. The, no. the question I actually have for you is because it's a roller coaster, your mind goes on the roller coaster as well. And this kind mm. of brings me into to the, the topic of mental health. Yeah. Be honest with me. What was yeah. the, the mental health journey throughout that whole period of time? Do you know where I sit in, uh, there was a long period of time. I, I guess that those, um, those words of, of, of man up or, or you, you just, 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 just roll with it. Just roll with it. Just man up is the most amount of nonsense that I've ever heard. Cause it's that in of itself is what's, is what's caused the crazy suicide rates that we see, especially in, in men and the way in which it's spiraling out of control. Cause it's like, keep it inside, repress it, put it under the carpet. Don't talk about it. That's what we do. That very alpha way. And thankfully and this is, goes back to my parents, my grandma and my my mum my in particular. It, it was all about open and conversation and, and, and speaking and have, have open conversation and be able to get it out and have a convo. And I think that there was periods where I just, I ride, rode through it. And I think Miami was kind of just, was a, was a break from a lot of things and me being out there and being a different climate, a different culture, enjoying those things, but that still wasn't fulfilling what I was really looking for. What I really wanted was connection and relationship in a way that I'd experienced almost in those kind of early doors before the first album and at the, when it hit. So the roller coaster ride is you find character in your lows, 100%. You, you ask the questions, the real questions, do you really want to do this? Are you really about this? And I am a musician through and through um, and I love it, but the, the, the depression is real. Mental health in, in, the, in the multitude and myriad of different ways that that can come about is real. And it's, the, and it's something that you can only, half the battle I've always spoken about, like you, it's, it's talking to, it's being able to express that 
to someone you can confide in. And even if it's not someone you can confide in, in a phone line that you can pick up and just speak to someone you don't know. Mm. Maybe in some ways that's, that can be even better. You can just go, I've got off my chest and they're giving you, they're hearing you, they see you. But that's only half the battle. The rest is then a journey of, they call it in more spiritual circles, the dark night of the soul of going through into a place where you're going to uncover everything that was put under that carpet, having to bring it to the light and having to bring it up and work through it to find a place where you pull the carpet up and all the dust goes up everywhere. And then you start to see where it lands. You start to say, okay, this was a story that I was telling myself. The things I was defining myself of myself were through how I looked and the approval of others. This is authority figures feeling like they had something over me. The power I had when I was the entrepreneur selling chocolates and, and making the songs. That's really who, who I've always been. But I had the abandoning, you used that earlier, abandoning yourself. When that starts to happen, it could spiral out of control. And I had injuries and, and uh, physical injuries through all the training and stuff that I did as well. That spiraled me into different depths of depression where I was just like, whoa, I've never experienced this. When things happen that you've never, they, they cumulatively build up, but then there's something that breaks it, just snaps it. And at that point, it just feels like, whoa, and you're trying to, you're in free fall. That's the feeling I feel with depression. I've experienced that. I know how it is. And I haven't really been as vocal, I guess, as, as today about like mm. that. And I feel it's necessary because it's, I don't want to be the one who's telling a story. I want to be so authentic and I want to open up. Like you said, you spoke mm. about things that you need to get off your chest mm. and let people know the other side of all this. Because in that is where all the, the beauty and empathy really is. And people could connect and they say, oh, what? So you went through that. Mm. Ah, so it isn't this thing that only me. And all of a sudden we're all connected and I'm thinking, yes. And then I'm, I'm inspired by people who kind of wear the heart on their sleeves mm. now. So yeah, I, I feel like it was a culmination of a lot of those things building up to being in the wrong place, being away from my family, missing being able to just make music in the way I did, coming back to the UK. And then as soon as I did that, and I felt, I felt my first huge hug when I walked in and saw Big Nasty, Corrupt FM, uh, Mr. Jam, uh, Stormzy was in the building, Shola Amma, and I did a, a, this this one extra performance, which was really, I was going to rock up and vibe fill me in. And I ended up singing it over Where Are You Now, the, the Justin Bieber, Diplo, Skrillex instrumental. There was this moment of love, I felt. Big Nasty gave me a hug first when I came in wearing his heart and sleeve. Booty Man's my tune. Oh my God, great. Booty Man is my song. And I'm like, whoa. Like really wearing his heart and sleeve. And then sing this song, sing Fill Me In as a remix vibe over this instrumental. And it went so viral that I'm looking on my phone, I'm seeing Justin Bieber like saying like, whoa, that's amazing that you need to check it 45 minutes into the show. Then I'm seeing Skrillex on, the, on my timeline. I'm seeing Diplo on the timeline. I'm just thinking something's happened here. But it was more than just, it needed me to play my part and get back home and get go through that Miami phase of what that was all about. I, I, I find that really interesting that mm. that's the fit. So is, was that the, that Miami phase, the first phase in your life where you encountered what you believe to be like depressive symptoms, where you felt, felt, fell into a depression? In the, in the latter stages. Of Miami? Yeah, because I got, I got injured out there. My, my back went like in, like in my lower back and I never felt a pain like that in my life. Like I felt aches and pains of, of training incidents and different things. I've had like anyone who's had like a, a blowout in the back. But this one in particular was just like, 
it was a feeling that just wouldn't give up. So I was, my movement patterns was, went from, you know, you're 100%, you're doing the last kind of leg, leg press and, I, it, it, and it's all these, it's deadlifts. <laughs> and I've got respect for deadlift, amazing move. Mm. But when you're, if your back goes on one of those, I promise you will, there's a feeling that you have, which is like putting your hands in like 240 volts in the wall, that it's just, it's different. It, like it's, it's a nerve pain, which is not like an ache or like, oh, it feels a bit sore, like you've got doms from doing too many kind of like some glute work. So when it went, I was like, I've never felt anything quite like this. And it made me have to check myself in a whole different way for the fact that every movement I did felt like I was getting that same spasm. So it wasn't just like one spasm. It wasn't like, okay, we've locked up, we're good. At that point, you know where you're at. I've had those before. We all had, I think in our lives, we'll have a sporadic moment where you have a thing. This was now, it's happening now, it's happening now, it's happening now. Like it, it was continuous nerve spasm. I was like, it was a spiral for me. It was, it was a point where I had dark thoughts. I was just like, I can't live my life like this. So I understood really at that point, the first time depression hit me and I couldn't reframe it as being positive. I couldn't say this is put a positive spin on it. There was nothing. So I had the mental thing. Mm. So I was getting, I kind of signed up for a, for a good, uh, for to, to be someone who, you have to experience certain things to be able to speak on it. And I get that now. So it's like, okay, well, if you come here to, to, to on mission to do this, you're going to have to feel pain physically. You're going to have to feel heartbreak. You're going to have to feel anxiety and abandonment of, of your body. You're, you're going to have to feel all these things. And then I hope that you get to a point where you get the memo, which I've now fully understood the memo. I don't need to be doing deadlifts and I don't need to be training like the way I trained before. I can stay healthy. And more importantly, what people enjoyed from me was music that it never had changed. And I realized that from when I came back to London, it was like, people just want to hear music and they were cool. They were just happy. And this version of me, and I love all the other versions because they all played a part. This isn't a judgment thing like, oh yeah, well, uh, we always tend to be like, yeah, an album comes out, you're like, yeah, it's no good anymore. This is the one. No, they all played a part to me sitting here today with you and being able to break down things and unpack things. And as a, as, a, as a man now, to be open enough to say, I know what depression feels like. I speak differently on things now. And the more I can open up and speak on the pain that I felt. And that back thing ran for years. It was like a couple of years, three years. I was like, and even to, I mean, even to the day, I'll put my hands up. I'm still working out like, do you know what I mean? Do we do surgery? Do we not? Do we like, I'm, it's, it's dialed down incredibly, but it was a defining moment. It was pivotal to me. And it just was like, whoa. And like I said, depression, you'll have dark thoughts. Dark thoughts. You'll have, you'll start having thoughts. So you're like, if this pain can continuously goes on like this, then I, I can't, it's, it sounds crazy for me even saying it because I'm like, you're the nicest guy and you're so positive and you're like, how could it? But I was like, I just can't live like that. I can't live like this. So you start not thinking about ways that you would say, I'm losing, I'm, take your life or to, to dip out. But it's, you start having thoughts of something has to happen. Like this, this pain is intolerable. Like I can't even style it out. I, there's nothing for it. And I think that that, when it started to dial down and we've done it from injections and all different kinds of things conservatively and strengthening the, the, the multifidus and the paraspinals and the glutes. I know my body so well now, it got me back into my body, mm. more importantly. 
I started to understand the mechanics of how my body works. I never really listened to things. You know, when you get a little ache and a pain or you get a little thing, telltale sign that's 10 years ago, you got a blowout and then it blows out again and you didn't listen. You keep going. All it does, it just amps up the sound till you get the one. You got the memo now? Okay, cool. Now you got the memo. That's how the universe works. So I'm really in tune with my body. When it starts telling me stuff, I'm like, I need to check for this early because in, I don't want that five year thing and the thing's going to let me know the hard way. Amen. It's dialed down, thank God, but all part of the plan because it's put me in a place where I can physically go out there and do my shows like I love. I can go out there and perform like I love. I don't need to be putting the extra working in a gym to, to satisfy anything that's, I can go swimming, I can move my body. And I, and I can, the things I can dial it up and we can get whatever would you, what we're we looking for, but who is it for? It's not for yeah. anyone anymore, I don't need that. But you are back, you're back in the UK now? Back in the UK. Back in the UK. Um, and you said this, you said this quote, you said to a lot of people, I'm at my destination, I've arrived, I'm back. But no, I'm still on my journey mm. and I'm not taking my foot off the gas. Now that, that phrase, foot on the gas, mm. right? It kind of sounds, it has hints of a former Craig. Yeah, when you even said foot off the gas here, I, I don't know what day I was saying that or what I was didn't feeling resonate. that. Yeah, that, when, you, when you said it to me then, I yeah. knew exactly as you were gonna yeah, say, yeah. like, what's this foot on the gas thing? Cause that would suggest that you're headstrong, run into run it. Running for so, something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I, I get the sentiment, but then also the, the phrase, the t terminology is a yeah. little bit it's this, troubling, right? Yeah, yeah. It's like, yeah. we're not, take the foot off the gas. Just yeah. relax, there's no need for the, for the, save your petrol, just, mm. just calm yourself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Stay, sometimes staying still, weirdly enough, is actually the one. I recognize when I stay still and the world moves, it's like, wow. Pandemic. Yeah. That I've got to say had for, for everything and, the, and the, the pain it caused and the, the people who lost their lives and families that were, that were suffering so deeply and still are. Um, when you look at just how it was a pause on the whole world, and it just had people recognizing that one, they had to relinquish control because it got to a point where I can't control this. So, okay, break open the Monopoly board. Let's, let's, let's have a game then. All of a sudden, back into kid, back into the child again. The child was seen, play started to happen. And as much as like, we, we, we all like to say that we need to be, the thing of doing, 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 but sometimes doing nothing. Don't, 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 Think that the world isn't working for you behind the scenes, yeah, when you're doing nothing, like having a good night's sleep, resting. Trust me, for all the working out in the gym and all those kind of things, the rest was the actual thing where all the growth happened. So why would that be no different for the way that we are when, let me, let me sleep on this. Let me slow down. And oh, man, it's, it's a blessing mm. to see someone as inspired and conscious as you putting it out there and allowing people like myself to come through, speak our truth, have people have a platform to speak and feel open and not feel like they're boxed in, having to kind of, got the media training here, have to be there. Yeah. open out <laughs> because that's what we need. We've done that. The old patriarchal system is crashing down. Yeah, it's not amen. working anymore. No one wants the divide and conquer and fight. It ain't gonna work. We want love, we want a heart-based relationship. So- That failed yeah. us, right? We tried that and it failed it us. Failed, it failed deeply, man. Yeah. It really did. And as we look forward, you've got this album coming out, which I'm really excited about called 22. Mm. And it's coming out on the 24th of June this yeah, year. Yeah. Talk to me, you know, throughout this, it's been 22 years as well since you, your first- First album. First album. Yeah. So 22 years later, 
your, t- your album 22 comes out. What can I expect from this? What, what is the inspiration? What is the, the art, the creativity, the pain? What is the, what is, what is it? Okay. So we, we know born to do it was, was the most, my baby. It broke out everything for me. It was the moment where everything I built up until that point, it was me getting the, the golden ticket. Let's say it's the golden ticket. We're entering into the, the chocolate factory now, excited, <laughs> but not the ending, right? Then I had to go through life a little. And now I'm landing at this place in my life where, and during the pandemic gave me a lot of time to write a lot of songs, got a studio at home. So I was just, I was writing a lot of songs and I had no rush. It felt like how I was when I made my first album. If I wanted to do a verse today, cool. If not, I'm going to go downstairs to the kitchen and maybe I'll throw on a movie and maybe I'll come back up. I was grateful that I had that and privilege to be able to do that and to, to make home a, as productive as I wanted it to be or as relaxed as I want it to be. It feels like it has all the, it has all the feels, it feels like it has all the feels of my first album, Born to Do It. I feel like the kid again. And I keep using the word feel because I think that's the most important. That's my, that's the only thing I can really gauge thing. How am I feeling? I've got a big sub speaker in my, in my new, in my, in my home in, 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 in London. Again. Same thing. <laughs> literally, I got to, I literally just patterned the same thing with a couple of blue lights to make it just look a little bit like I would say 2.0 version of the same, but same big speaker. I can play it loud. I've had people come over and I've said, you, you, you need to understand what bass is. Like really, because they think they know what bass is. You got a little sonar system and it's all cool. Got a little couple subs. No, 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 no. Listen to this. And you get that. Well, it's, mm. it's different. So I feel like I've got the R&B on there. I've got the, the garage on there. I've got songs that I feel that weave a beautiful journey of where I'm at now. I feel I'm speaking on things that it's coming from a place where I can still have the lingo and the languaging that doesn't set you off as being like, oh, you, you were like in the 2000s and you're, but no one says that anymore. No one's saying tipsy in the, in the club anymore. No one's even really saying getting wavy anymore. That's sort of like a bit, a couple of years back. You know what I mean? What's the mm. new? So working with young artists, working with young fresh songwriters, they'll give me languaging that allows me to get my messaging across, but in a way that it can get the most broadest kind of reach. I just feel like we've, yeah, I don't want to gas it because it feels like yeah, every artist does that, right? For you. Yeah, it's just, it feels really true to where I'm at right now. And I've got, I listen to it and I'm excited to listen back to this album. And as I have done since really the following my intuition album, since I came back, 2016 did that one, time is now, and this one. But this one feels like with that, I'm a journeyman. That's the, the, the cover album cover is me on a journey. And I feel like that journeyman of just 22 years in now. And as I said to the Willy Wonka element, I feel like Charlie, who's now going through the test, he got a little caught up, which if you clock it, it was his grandpa who kind of got him to take that fizzy, uh, fizzy um, lifting drink and he started to go up into the thing. It wasn't really Charlie, he was calm. He was actually being the good one across it. It was his granddad that kind of got him, right? To get to the end where the everlasting gobstopper part, where he has a choice to sell himself out go sell it for 50,000 pounds, I think, to the, the competitor chocolate maker of Slugworth, or does he go back and, pu- and put it back on Willy Wonka's desk and do the right thing, knowing he's going away with nothing? I feel like I'm at that place where I'm in, I've created an album and I'm willing to, I'm willing to trade in all of the things that I'd up until this point, this pretense that maybe I had behind the scene that people didn't really know. I, 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 there's always getting 80% of me, but there was a 20% and that's enough. Or 10% of me that's not is enough. It's like the uh, the princess and the pea. 
Trust me, it's underneath there and it will keep getting you. It's like the thorn in the foot. It's like, it doesn't have to be big. It's not some big drama, but it's getting you, right? I want to pull the thorn out. I want to find the pee, all right? I want to, I want to say, I want to sleep on my night in my mattress where I'm not feeling slightly uncomfortable because I know there's something underneath there. There's a, there's a mm. needle in a haystack and I don't want, I know it's in there. Yeah, we got to find it. I'm at that stage where I'm dropping this album that I feel I've put the Everlasting Gobstopper back and I have no idea if Willy Wonka's going to turn around and say, Charlie, you did it. I knew you would do it. I had to test you. I had to test mm. you. He's like, what? What, the chocolate? No, more than the chocolate. What is it? You've got the whole chocolate factory. You've got the whole chocolate factory and his family can move in and everyone can be part of it. And that's how I'm feeling now. Everyone can be part of this. This is, this is different now. So I'm excited, man. Oh, I'm excited. And you know, I'm, I'm, I was excited before, but hearing your description of it and feeling your energy about where this is coming from, and it's coming from that place of like it, it, your intuition, your wisdom and your maturity. Mm. And over those 22 years, all of that, unbelievable twisting journey that you've been on to create a record now um which which sort of collects all of that wisdom and all of that emotion and truth and pain and experience is, mm. is really something to be um excited about as a as a craig david fan so thank oh. you for for giving us another project I, i've not heard it yet mm. I, they wouldn't they wouldn't let me hear it but i but i can't i'll, can't wait. I'll listen you know, <laughs> you know what on the real not just because yeah. I always feel like these these moments have always more than yeah. like you've done you, you, you've done your your moment together. But I just feel there's a friendship building here anyway. No, so I'll, so, yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll walk out and I'll I'll play the album. <laughs> and we'll get some food and we'll vibe. So it's calm. You'll be well ahead of the game. No, do you know from the minute you walked in the door, I felt like I'd known you a long time, and that's, that's a credit to you because I meet a lot of people here, right? So sometimes people come in and maybe they're a little bit colder and like that. You know, there's a lot of things going on in their lives which I'm unaware of. So yeah. I've got to have empathy for that. But the minute you walked in through the door, it was like you were my brother. And it's like we'd known each other for a long time. And that's, that's honestly, it's a credit to you. So look, thank you. Thank you so much for your time. We have a closing tradition on this podcast, Mm. which is the previous guest writes the next guest a question. Nice. So I'm okay. And I don't get to see what it is until I open the book. Nice, nice. So the previous, and this is a very good one, in fact, very fitting. The previous guest wrote, if you could whisper in the ear of your 14 year old self, what would you whisper? That's good. That's good. That's good. Listen, Craig, I know this might freak you out because you're hearing a voice in your ear right now, but trust me, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a little older version of you and everything you're about to do right now is going to change your life in the most beautiful way. And I want you just to enjoy every moment and know that there will be times that will be quite hard, but know that I'm here, know that I'm always there holding your hand along the way. And I promise you that once you get through them, the feeling you will have will be like the euphoria you are just about to experience in a couple of years time. So get ready and trust me, the crowd are going to go off when they hear something soon. Okay. Love to you, my man. Oh, <laughs> amen. <laughs> <laughs> it was like a prayer. Thank you so much, Craig, honestly. My pre- Thank listen. you, honestly. It's a huge honor. And your vulnerability and openness, you don't know. You won't ever get to see the impact it has. I probably mm. will. I'll get the comments and the messages and you right. will as well. But the, the impact of you being, being, self-aware enough and, and man enough to mm. be vulnerable, Appreciate I think is, is really something which I, I applaud you for because Thank you just you. don't really, you know, the impact you're going to have on a lot of young men specifically mm. is, is profound and uh, yeah, long lasting. So thank you. Thank you, brother. And feel mutual, man. It's really genuine. Appreciate it. Thank, thank you. you.
always one decision away from taking your business to the next level. And a decision that's helped me to transform my business is moving over to NetSuite, who I'm excited to say are a sponsor of this podcast. If you don't know already, NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. It's reduced IT costs because it lives in the cloud, so you can access it from anywhere. And the cost of managing and running multiple systems because it's in one unified business management suite. My team and I don't have to worry about tasks being manual and clunky, and it means that I can be more efficient and to focus on more important things like bringing you the best episodes and guests on this show. So I become one of the 37,000 companies that have already made the move over to NetSuite. NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. So head to netsuite.com Bartlett for a free product tour. Back to the episode. 